0: about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philokalia Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philokalia Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you, and enjoy the podcast. to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back to our study of the Evergatinos. And we are picking up this evening on page 407 of the text of the first volume. And we had just started letter E uh, from St. Diaticus. Uh, And so we're about halfway through his section at the top of the page of 407 with the paragraph beginning of these two forms of humility and so we've been discussing humility for quite a while, and uh, this is where I think our Monday and Wednesday night groups have been working very well together. Uh, John Climacus and Derek Katinas have been lining up uh, well for us and discussing pride and humility at the same time, and so it's allowed us to go very deep in terms of the, the father's understanding of this and what it looks like uh, in an individual's life. And so tonight we'll finish up uh, this hypothesis on humility. And we're coming very close to the end of the first volume. We'll stay with humility for a little while in regards to uh, self-reproach of acknowledging one's sinfulness uh, freely and without the desire to hide it. Uh, not seeking uh, self-honor or privileges, special privileges within the world for ourselves or clinging to them, uh, how to uh, respond uh, to praise from, from others as well, that, uh, how it is that we receive that from others but not have it become something that we uh, become overly attached to, uh, and then frugality, as we draw close to the end of the volume. Uh, so uh, what, how we are to approach the things of this world. Uh, again, sort of looking at that as at how the Desert Fathers embraced it, but then trying to understand what that would look like for us uh, in terms of a life of simplicity and frugality. And then finally, the, the volume complete uh, finishes with Uh, not being driven by passionate cravings for things. And um, I think we've all experienced this, certainly in our life, where uh, the idea, the desire for something takes hold of us. Uh, And whether it's for material goods or honors, or just to have our own will fulfilled, and how easily we can be uh, driven uh, by this. And so this is where the volume will, will end for us. Uh, But tonight, again, we're picking up with humility, again, on page 407. Okay. Of these two forms of humility, that that which is born of spiritual experience is accompanied, for the most part, by sorrow and despondency, while the other is accompanied by joy and all-wise reverence. For as I said, the first kind of humility comes to those who are in the midst of struggles, whereas the other is sent by God to those who are approaching perfection. So we, we go through our spiritual life and we are often humbled by certainly our own poverty and the experience of our own sin. And as we begin to overcome Uh, the passions and their grip upon us that God will allow us to be tested in certain measures to enter into the struggle more deeply in order that that virtue might be perfected within us that as it's put to the test and as we are stretched as it were uh, in our practice of it uh, it it grows uh, but it grows through primarily that struggle uh, and if you remember, St. Dioticus made the, uh, another distinction where God will uh, simply of his grace perfect uh, that uh, humility by drawing us into his own life more and more deeply. That one of the qualities of God is this humble, self-emptying love. And as we are drawn into this deeper intimacy, Uh, with him then we begin to experience this divine humility and uh, again this is something that can only be given to us as gift and that comes through our relationship with God Uh, it's not something of this world and this diaticus tells us uh, is accompanied by a kind of joy uh, that we might experience our lowliness, uh, and especially in relationship to the the, the virtue of God. But it's not something that leads to a despondency for us, that it is like a child being picked up, as it were, by his or her parent, uh, exalted, lifted up. Uh, But uh, in the experience of that weakness, of that need, Uh, We experienced only joy because we were being drawn closer to God. And so this type of of virtue, uh, as he said, is not accompanied so much by the the sorrow or the uh, struggle that we had once had, but rather by a deep joy, an abiding joy. He goes on to say, this is why the humility that is generated in the first often seems jeered uh, by worldly prosperity while the other is not affected, even if one were to offer it all the kingdoms of the world, nor does it fill the arrows of sin, since being wholly spiritual, it is totally ignorant of material gifts. So as a person is humble, and as their virtue grows, uh, they will be mocked, by the world, the, the virtual will be seen as full foolish or foolhardy to, to walk this path, uh, but for the person within whom the virtue has been perfected, there won't even be an awareness or concern about such things. There's been such a freedom that has emerged. From attachment to worldly things, not because they're evil, but because one is attached to that which is enduring and eternal, the eternal love of God. And when one has eyes only for God, all those things begin to slip out to the periphery and we do not even see them. So one isn't drawn by an attachment to sin, nor uh, afflicted by the, the scorn and mockery of the world. And so, again, you know, we've talked about this before, about how our vision of the spiritual life, but also the pursuit of virtue and our experience of the virtue begins to change through our reading of the fathers, that we begin to see why they could speak of desiring such things and loving such things and the disciplines that lead to them. Uh, It's because of the joy that was set before them that as they begin to be able to see that with a greater clarity through the perfecting of their faith and purity of heart they could run to it with a greater swiftness but but also ease not weighed down uh, as they once had been either by their sin or their attachment to the things of the world he goes on to say the struggler therefore should by all means pass through the first kind of humility if he is to arrive at the second kind. For if the grace of God does not soften our self-will beforehand by testing it with the assaults of the passions, that is without compelling us, it will not bestow on us the richness of spiritual humility. So we are drawn through the struggle not to, to punish us But again, with the goal in mind that what might be bestowed upon us would be spiritual humility, the humility that is of the life of God itself. And so at first, the, as it were, the soil, good soil of the heart must be prepared to to receive it, Uh, the seed of this virtue uh, that uh, is part of the very life of God. And so we should not uh, resent or hesitate to have to walk upon that path or to endure uh, the the humbling and sometimes humiliating experiences of life if we can keep before our eyes uh, the joy that is promised to us in Christ. And it's hard, admittedly, you know, I think on a day-to-day basis, when we have that first kind of humility tested, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, a kind of joy uh, arising from the perfecting of that, that we could come to experience that level of freedom. Uh, I think, uh, as we've talked about so many times, our ego uh, pushes itself back to the center and we want to protect uh, some sense of self-esteem that is tied to the things of this world. We take our eyes off of God, even just for a moment, and then we're right back where we where we had begun. Which, you know, is the struggle with the passions and with self-esteem. But once we are freed of that, then all we see and experience is the love of God, even in the sufferings and the trials of this life. And I think when people read the lives of the saints, this is the thing that is often confusing or seems out of reach. How could they endure such things and often endure them with the the joy uh, that they sometimes did, even to the point of martyrdom, that they at times were able to endure even the most difficult physical sufferings and I think our initial response to reading it is always to shrink back when we read the the stories of the, the mar- martyrs and the, the tortures that they underwent. Uh, and, but what is more difficult to understand, I think, is that joy. And I think the fathers here give us a glimpse into why it was true for them that they came to see the love of God and the virtue of God so clearly that this is what their hearts desired above all things, even more than their own life. Letter F from St. Maximus. Humility is constant prayer combined with tears and toil, for it always calls upon God for help, and does not allow a man to be recklessly confident in his own abilities and wisdom, or to behave arrogantly towards another. These are dangerous diseases of the passion of pride." So constancy of prayer, that uh, which in and of itself is an act of humility, that we bring ourselves before God knowing our weakness. And so, Uh, At every moment, trying to call out to him and for his help, Uh, but then with also with tears and toil that we know tears from our falls our compunction, but also the toil of striving to uh, embrace the virtue and overcome the passions. And so not, not again, not an easy thing by any stretch. Letter G from Abba Isaac. The man who has succeeded in recognizing the measure of his weakness has attained to perfect humility and knowledge of God. For this reason, being ever moved to thanksgiving, he continually abounds in the gifts of divine grace. The mouth which always gives thanks to God receives God's blessings. And the heart that abides in continuous gratitude to God always receives an increase of grace. Humility precedes grace, just as pride runs before temptation. So with the growth in humility, uh, there is this growth in uh, gratitude to God. And one builds upon another that the more grateful that we become, the more humble we become before God as well. And uh, so when we humble him, uh, we experience grace, and when we experience that grace, we know the deep gratitude within our heart, and then set ourselves again uh, to pursue greater and greater virtue. So this brings us to the the very end of this uh, particular, the rest are footnotes uh, that I'll leave for you to read on your own, but it brings us to the end of that particular hypothesis on humility, which is rather lengthy. Uh, But before we move on, uh, does anybody have any final comments or questions about what the Father's have put before us? Okay all right we're moving on uh to hypothesis 46 concerning what profit there is in reproaching ourselves so something tied very much uh to humility this uh willingness uh to see clearly uh the truth about ourselves but also to to reproach ourselves to correct ourselves uh, in in the failures in the faults the blessed zosimus recounted the following i once stayed for a short while in the lavra of abba gerasimos who i gained a beloved where i've gained a beloved brother one day while we were sitting and talking about spiritual profitable matters we remembered the saying of abba poimen that he who censures himself in all things finds spiritual rest. We also remember the saying of Abba uh, of Mount Nitria, where he was asked, Father, what more have you found on this path? He replied that we should always censure and reprove ourselves. The one who posed the question confirmed the wisdom of this answer when he said, Truly there is no other path to perfection than this. So how do we get to humility or what is uh, one of the ways that we respond uh, to seeking it out? And uh, the one that the fathers put before us is this willingness to reproach ourselves And as we will see, to receive the reproaches uh, of others, too, uh, even when it's not clear to us what the source or the origin of that reproach might be. Uh, And again, that can be a very challenging thing, as we will see uh, through one of the stories here that's related to us. As we recalled these wise words, we said to each other in amazement, how much power the words of the saints have. For truly, whatever they utter comes from experience and life. And this is why their words have power, as St. Anthony the Great said, being uttered by men who were experienced and practical. So, again, you know, this little reminder we are given to us that, that their knowledge uh, was not just uh, of the mind, notional, but real, practical, and coming out of experience. As a certain sage said, let your life confirm your words. While we were conversing on these matters, the beloved brother said, I've experienced the value of these words and the rest that comes upon the soul by putting them into practice. So we're going to be presented here with a fairly lengthy story about it. Uh, But again, it's, it's meant to show us that there. There is a rest that comes uh, through the labor. And again, it's a rest that is not then easily taken from us or uh, uh, taken from our hands once it is something that is possessed. I once had in this Lavra a true brother and friend who was a deacon. This deacon, from what source I do not know, suspected me of being guilty in some matter which caused him distress. For this reason being um, I'm sorry, for this reason, he began to behave rudely towards me. When I saw him acting testily, he began to behave rudely towards me I'm sorry, I'm not reading real, very well tonight When I saw him acting testily around me, I asked him to tell me the reason for this displeasure with me. I'm annoyed by what you did, he replied, and this is why I am upset with you. Since I could not imagine having done anything of the kind that he said I had done, I assumed that I had absolutely no idea what this was all about. However, he was not persuaded, but said to me, forgive me, I'm not convinced by what you tell me. I think most of us would probably just quit at that point. Uh, You know, when we would search our minds and our hearts and feel that I have no recollection of possibly doing anything that would give rise to this uh, kind of rudeness. Uh, And, uh, but, you know, the more that he seems to protest, the more angry uh, the other becomes. After returning to my cell, I questioned myself in more detail to see whether I had done such a thing, but I found nothing. After this, I saw this brother holding the Holy Cup and giving communion to the other brethren. I took the opportunity of informing them in the name of what he was holding that I was not aware of having done what he said, but not even in this way was he persuaded. So, he takes it a step further. Uh, it's before the blessed sacrament, he's telling uh, this individual, I, I honestly have no awareness of what you are saying. So, he's becoming more and more defensive in, in it, and frustrated in it, understandably so. Uh, but uh, this sort of plays into, Uh, the story but I think also into our experience. The more we protest, uh, it it reveals the kind of agitation within us again to hold on to something that we feel is precious to us and that is being held in uh, high regard by others. When I had collected myself again, I examined the past, calling to mind the words of the Holy Fathers, which I mentioned previously, and believing sincerely in the truth of these words. I turned away my mind from what I had been thinking hitherto and said to myself, the deacon loves me sincerely, and moved by this love, he plucked up the courage to tell me what fault he had held against me in his heart. So that I might wake up and at least not repeat it in the future. But O oh, miserable soul, when you say "I have done not, I have not done this thing, consider the other evils which you have committed and do not remember and assume that just as you do not remember all that you did yesterday and before that, so you did what he says and have forgotten it. With this thought, therefore, I was convinced, I convinced my heart that I had actually done this deed about which the deacon was distressed and about which I had no knowledge and that I had forgotten about it as I had forgotten about other previous sins. After this, I began to thank God and the deacon because through the latter, I was counted worthy of recognizing my sin and repenting for it. So, you know, he digs pretty deep here spiritually to say okay I, I don't remember it now but in all honesty and humility there are so many sins in my life that I've committed that I have no recollection of and so even though it stings the heart I'll embrace this because on some level I deserve it for all the many sins that I've, for, I've forgotten. After these reflections, I got up and went to the deacon's cell in order to make a prostration before him and to ask his forgiveness, and at the same time to thank him. When I arrived, I stood outside his door and knocked. The deacon opened it, and on seeing me, at once made a prostration to me first, saying, Forgive me, for the demons made sport of me, and I suspected you of being implicated in this matter. But in truth, God informed me that you had nothing to do with it and did not know anything about it. No sooner had I begun to reply and assure him, than he stopped me and said, there's no need for you to go any further. So it's as if the act of acknowledging the fact that there are a multitude of sin sins that we do not see, or there are a multitude of sins that we have even seen, and instead of truly repenting, have merely pushed them out of mind. That there are times in our life where if we can just put enough time between ourselves and certain sinful behaviors, it will pass out of memory or at least out of consciousness. And we experience some relief from that, Uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, certainly we are freed from the the burden of it. And it is as if in his recognizing that, then the God uh, then allows the deacon to see the greater truth that he had not committed uh, the sin that he had imagined that he had, that the demons were making sport of him. And so Abba Zosimos concludes, uh, following the story, see how genuine repentance so disposed the heart of one who truly desired it, such that he was not scandalized by the deacon, even when on the one hand, the latter suspected him of doing something about which he knew nothing and was grieved at him without good reason and on the other hand did not accept his explanations, which were of the sort that would persuade even an enemy and much more so a friend. Not only indeed was he not scandalized about all this, as we've said, but he also ascribed to himself a sin which he had not committed since he considered the deacons were to be more trustworthy than his own heart. And not only this, but he undertook to make prostration to the deacon and to thank him for having freed him from responsibility for a sin about which he had absolutely no knowledge. So, you know, this is kind of unfathomable, uh, I think, for us. You know, when accused, we often will move to that defensive position. And we see him do that, but in response to seeing it within him, struggles with it, does battle with it at least, uh, tries to engage uh, the deacon about it. And when he sees that he's uh, not convincing him and that the deacon continues to insist that he humbles himself before the judgment of the other, of the deacon and uh, trusts more in the love of the deacon to offer that fraternal correction uh, even though he doesn't see it. And this is where his humility is, is brought to a kind of perfection uh, this willingness to engage in this kind of self reproach for past sin and even to prostrate himself before uh, another who is reproving him. And so Zozumo says, Do you see what power humility, that is self reproach, has? and to what heights of spiritual advancement it raises one who possesses it. For therefore, we were to take care of our hearts in this way and to train them with thoughts of humility. It would be impossible for the enemy to find any place in our souls to sow evil seeds in us. But since he finds us bereft of every good thought, or rather since we dispose ourselves towards evil... He is given opportunities by us to sow seeds within us. And in this way, he turns us from men into demons. It is the function of demons to disturb men and always to be disturbed, which is contrary to what happens with virtue. For if the Lord sees a soul that thirsts to be saved and which cultivates or is eager to cultivate good thoughts, And display a laudable desire for the good. He bestows his grace upon the soul. Through which it is raised to a very high level of progress. Within a short time. As scripture says. With those who desire the good. God cooperates for the good. So. This monk's desire for the good. Desire for the virtue. Speeds him to attain it. Uh, through this very difficult experience, but nonetheless one that he uh, entered into uh, with great humility. So a humility that was already there in great measure is brought to this perfection where one is made free. And I think the little point here that, that is made about the demon's role in disturbing a soul It's important for us to see that this is one of their great desires, which is to agitate the heart, to pull it away from the peace of Christ. And so any way that they can do that, they will will do it. And they will use others and the words of others uh, to to aid uh, in that process. And so if... They can put a thought before the mind of one, to falsely accuse a brother, or to judge them harshly, or simply to to say something that is 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 harsh or insulting. Uh, that can be enough to agitate the mind and heart. But the freedom that comes through this kind of humility that has been perfected in the crucible, uh then a person obtains this level uh, where he is unmoved by these things can receive them uh in a christ-like fashion and not see them as doing anything other than giving him an opportunity for perfection and patience and humility and so You know, we have to recognize, again, that this is a very high level of of humility. But what it does present us with is this image, this vision of the freedom, the joy that God is drawing us to, of life in him, of life in Christ. That we would be free from the demons' temptations. And we would be free from the things that seek to steal joy from our, our hearts, which again tells us another thing. You know that uh, the holy individual would be the joyful individual, not that they don't struggle or go through uh, difficult times, uh, but that they're Uh, main attitude of mind and heart is joyfulness in Christ and seek to maintain that and hold on to that that ours again our asceticism is something that should not make us in and of itself gloomy you know that if if it's again simply self-endurance or punish punishment, it's going to lead to a kind of unholy sorrow, not compunction, but an unholy sorrow that that draws us, you know, into the depths of despondency. Sharon Fisher writes, does that mean that if we were wholly aware of our faults and someone else called them out to us, we'd have already recognized and come to peace with them and the accusation has no effect or sting. Uh, it might have uh, a sting only in so far as uh, there might be some uh, attachment to self, Uh, or self-esteem or still attachment to the thing that led us uh, to the fault or to the sin. Uh, But for the one who's, you know, has this uh, greater perfection and humility, that they would be able to receive that, again, with the knowledge that there are so many things that are hidden from us, that they're able to receive, even if it is a sting that they are able to receive it for what it is and not be moved to frustration with the other or the the need, I I, I think, to cloak it, cover it up or undo it. Just in general, I think it's very hard to allow people to be angry with us, even in day-to-day life. It's it's a hard thing, and pe- people get in their moods, and <clears throat> and sometimes, you know, they'll they'll project it out onto us, and they'll treat us poorly, uh, or perhaps there's something that they don't like that we do, or the way that we do it, and so become angry with us. And there is a part of us that can be very uncomfortable with that, allowing them to be angry with us and to deal with that we want to undo it and there can be a kind of self-esteem in that too because we don't want it we want don't want anybody to think ill of us and so we immediately try to fix the problem uh, as it were and uh and again that can become a distraction for us uh i think a humble soul you know certainly if there's something that one has done or that has, you know, been an affliction to the other. We would want to respond in the way described here—to apologize, to prostrate ourselves, to to you know, to ask the forgiveness that is owed. But uh, there are going to be times where people just become angry with us, and we have to be able to endure that. And I think humility is is part of that. That it's very difficult to make our way through this life without being in a constant state of defensiveness if we can't can't bear the anger of others. Nobody sees every end. nobody sees our you know our intentions, and oftentimes those intentions are going to you know be seen as being negative. And so somebody might wholly misinterpret what we do and say. And, you know, sometimes our responsibility be to get angry back at them or, or immediately want to come to our defense and uh, to protect ourselves, Turn the other cheek or just allow them their feelings. I think it's both. I mean, part of it is turning the other cheek, you know, not giving it back to a person as we often do with uh, in greater measure uh, uh but uh, allow them to have their feelings i think is a good way of of putting it that on some level we cannot live another person's life for them and uh you know it's they really have to struggle with their their own emotions and um, this isn't to say that we don't support uh individuals but there are times where we cannot be another person's spiritual director or their therapist because we're you know it's not the role for us to have and we have to allow them to work through that with God or just work through it internally not that they have to work through it even with the therapist I mean people get angry all the time. Father David? Yes. um, When someone does express anger Isn't that some type of uh, understanding within themselves? And we're just trying to be within God's peace to be able to be there with them in some ways, as opposed to react to that process, even though we are human beings. Uh, Yes, if I'm understanding you correctly, that, you know, that we can be with them, that anger is an emotion. And in and of itself is not sinful. And a person might be struck by something that appears a certain way to them. And I think this allowing them to have their feelings is even part of that, to, to remain with them in it rather than pushing back. And you know, often doing what we do, which is sometimes engage in this verbal battle or we fall into a fierce coldness too and, you know, avoid them. I think what we would want to do is to, to pray for them and to try to be gracious to them and not to give it back to them a- in greater measure. And, uh, you know, I think we see even within the gospel, you know, c- certainly people getting angry at, at, at Christ and, uh, you know, there, there was much that he had to endure there. And you know, uh, even when his words could not penetrate uh, their heart, Stephen Yu writes, uh, "Would you praying for the spirit of repentance trigger humility?" I ask because a constant state of humility seems like a difficult goal for me. Uh, the spirit of you know, praying for repentance you know is the starting point of it all i think the beginning of this volume in fact we've talked about often that the first 10 at least hypotheses all had to do with repentance this turning toward god and i think this is what opens the door for healing for us all and so praying for that spirit of uh, repentance is our path to what we come to at the end of this volume is humility to be able to see things in their full truth uh, but what what's different i think when we come to the end of the volume is that seeing things in their full truth doesn't crush us or bring us to a despondency but when it's perfected it uh, allows us to experience the joy of life in christ And it is difficult, and I I think that's why so much of that time was spent on repentance, to help us to to trust that what God looks for is this simple turning of the mind and the heart towards him, that he's not looking to crush us, but rather to heal us and lift us up. Again, this is part of the beauty, I think, of the Eastern spirituality is that it sees the church as a hospital and the spiritual life, the ascetical life as a path of healing and and not purely just discipline or or fulfilling a kind of obligation. And so our repentance is moving towards he who is the divine physician, the healer. And and we see what kind of healing he brings us to, which is, uh is something that is far more than what we deserve i mean in the the eastern uh right we read the story of the good samaritan uh this sunday and you know we're the ones we're the wretch on the road and you know we're the one you know christ descends from that heavenly jerusalem into our desert our darkness he takes upon himself our burden. You know, he uh, puts on oil and wine, you know, the, the things that heal, but also nourish, nourishes us, brings us to the end, the hospital, and then tells those within the hospital to do whatever's need needed, no matter how extravagant, that the cost is paid and will be paid in full, that there's nothing that God will uh, withhold to bring us to that full healing and uh again and again i think this is what comes forward within the, the writings of the fathers you know we we are set upon by one who seeks to draw us down into darkness and has done so and uh and it is christ who's you know when no one else is willing or capable of doing what he's done, has taken upon himself all of it, uh, regardless of the cost. You know, one of the reasons that the priest and the Levite walk on the other side is, you know, if he was dead, then to touch him was to become unclean. But, you know, this road from Jerusalem to Jericho was notorious for bandits, that they would often have somebody lie in the middle of the road pretending to be dead. And then as soon as somebody stopped to tend to them, they would all come rushing out and jump on the person and attack them and rob them and beat them and leave them for dead. So uh it's little wonder that they you know want to walk past. But what we see Christ do is, you know, not only you know stop to tend but take upon you know he lays the person on his beast of burden he takes he lays he takes us all of us upon himself uh upon the humanity uh, which he embraced and uh in order that we might be brought to safety and to healing and all of this comes forward so beautifully i think within the the writings of the fathers if we're willing i think to stay with them uh because it's often look we went through this whole volume and as we come to humility if you can even make it through these you you begin to see you know this magnificent vision begin to open up before you that what all of this is about is our being drawn into divine virtue a share in the divine life and it's little wonder that it should seem hard to us, if not impossible, because it's not natural virtue, it's divine virtue that we're being drawn into and divine life that is being given to us. And you know, I think part of our problem in our day, especially as we move to a more therapeutic view <clears throat> of life uh, is that or self-help approach to life, is that we have a, a lower anthropology rather than the high anthropology that's presented to us in the gospel which were presented with this very high view of what it is to be a human being. That God has created us in his image and likeness. We have been afflicted through the fall. But God has come to us not even to draw us back to this original innocence, but to elevate us, to share in the very dignity of the life of the Holy Trinity. And we see this, we celebrate this, our great feast day is the Feast of the Ascension, where Christ, you know, uh, uh, returns with the Father in his humanity. He's the first fruits of the resurrection for us. And so we catch a glimpse of our dignity and destiny in him. And, uh... I I don't think, as as Christians, we even, we rarely get to the point of contemplating this. Because if Christianity has become more just cultural or moralistic and legalistic, we're we're not going to think about the spiritual life in the terms that the fathers are putting before us. You know, they're putting this image of Christ before us and what it is like for us to be drawn into the life of Christ. Into the life of God, where as we often will think about so, certain moral infractions, or you know br- breakdowns in, in, in regards to our, our sins, which is true, you know that is part of our struggle, but it doesn't capture our identity and certainly doesn't capture everything that, that God has done for us. Okay, so that brings us to the end of this hypothesis. We still have a little time. And so why don't we move on uh, to 47, which is about seeking honor and certain privileges. Um, You know, it is, you know, we all can crave it. You know, again, wanting to to, to be loved, to be appreciated, to be afforded the respect that we feel that we've earned uh as human beings or should be given as human beings by others and so to crave that to seek it uh to desire even more than that certain privileges uh and you know we are to look at this especially in light of christ himself that uh you know he who knew equality with god did not count that as something to be grasped at but humbled himself And became obedient, you know, took on the form of a slave. And so we begin with the, the great Saint Ephraim the Syrian, letter A on page 412. Brother, why do you err being enticed by the devil to gain in status from which you will derive no benefit by conferring honor upon yourself? Hear what the apostle says. For not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth. The Lord also say, How can ye believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Come to your senses, my beloved, and reflect on why you renounce the vanity of life and the devil and his pride, and not stop thinking any and stop thinking any longer about worldly things. Do you not know that if you humiliate your neighbor, you commit the sin of self-love and vainglory? Consider this fact. You have esteemed yourself more highly than your brother and put yourself before him out of uh, contentiousness and egotism. And this because you are not willing to humble yourself before your brother, now will this vainglory commend you to God, and will it entitle you to preferential treatment in heaven? In no way, since God himself said, what, Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. St. Ephraim, just you know, one of the most extraordinary writers, and in a simple paragraph puts it so beautifully that uh, our honor only comes from God. That's where our dignity and our identity comes from. And yet we often will seek that which is much less, infinitely less and fight desperately for it. You know, we you know often will not fight desperately for virtue, but we will fight desperately out of vanity and self-love and egotism uh, simply because we are of a contentious spirit that we, you know, are constantly engaging in, in verbal battles with others and trying to gain that place of, again, um, emotional position within the relationship. Suzanne writes, just having to work in the world is a great opportunity to practice humility. How many times do we draw down upon ourselves the dislike and resentment of coworkers for no discernible reason? Right, because you know I think if we live in the world and knowing our, ourselves and knowing how we will often judge others, not seeing the full truth, not seeing all ends uh, about their life or what's going on with them, you know, why would we not expect that they would view us in the same way? Especially if they are not seeking even the same things that we are seeking as taught by Christ, that inevitably that we are going to be the focal point of resentment, of, you know, of hatred, uh, and, uh, and of misunderstanding. In fact, Christ guarantees it, you know, especially if we if we call ourselves christian you will be hated by all because of my name is what he told us and so for us to, you know to be contentious and to hold on to petty honors is seems kind of foolish when you think about it in those terms and in light of what of what christ says and so yes you know living in the world provides us with a multitude of opportunities to grow in this virtue. Beware then, my brother, lest in wanting to take precedence over your brother you come last there in the age to come, and heed what the glory-loving rich man heard when he was being tortured in an unquenchable fire. Remember that thou in in thy lifetime receivest the good things. For scripture says that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Reckon, therefore, my brother, that you have died to the world, and that your life is hidden with Christ in God. And Christ, who is our life, shall appear. Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. But as it is, do not love the glory of men. For this earthly glory does not last you forever, as the apostle says. For all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. So, you know, anything that we might cling to of this world, any honor, any dignity that might be afforded us by anything in this world or by anyone is as grass. It will all come to nothing. It will all fade away into dust. And so why is it that we cling to it so desperately? You're right, so cast off this yoke of the enemy and his pride, my beloved, and place your neck under the sweet yoke of the master. For he said, whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And elsewhere, he says, the Lord resisteth the proud, and giveth grace to the humble. So over and over again, within the scriptures, we hear Christ calling us uh, along this path. And most of all, we see it in himself from the incarnation on as the perfect example of this. We just have to keep bringing our minds back to uh, thinking about his teaching, but looking at him and his image, in particular, the cross. Let us fear then, my beloved, lest God, the righteous judge, say of us, for they have loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And let us humble ourselves before all for the Lord's sake, that we might attain to rest both on earth and in heaven. For he himself said, Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Know this also, my brother, that in worldly life the eloquent man is praised, but that in monastic life he who loves stillness and silence is great in the sight of God. Again, among worldly people, he who adorns his body and frequently changes his clothes as human glory, whereas in this calling, he who despises clothing and attends only to the vital needs of the body is considered praiseworthy, as the Apostle Paul says, and having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. He who thinks and acts in this way ensures for himself glory in the heavens. It's amazing. I think when we hear the father speak about the scriptures in the context of their teachings and to see how deeply rooted they are it often reveals at least it does to me how much of scripture we forget or i forget that it's all it's there in such a clear fashion in regards to what christ teaches and yet, uh, having heard it so many times, we have not internalized it in the way that they have. That for them, their, their spiritual reading was the scripture. And you could see it. It comes forward in every word that they write. And uh, this is how deep deeply we should read the scriptures and how deeply they should be uh, engraved upon our hearts as well that they they really do shape our vision of life. And finally David? pardon me simply uh, saying David? yes. Um so we're meant to stay in stillness and silence then? Well he, he speaks here in particular of the monastic that you know certainly above all you know the the, the monastic is going to seek his full dignity and identity in God. And we have heard the fathers say that the language of the kingdom, the language of heaven is silence. It is here that God speaks that word that is equal to himself. And so a monk is going to be slow to speak because what he wants is not for his own words to be heard, but rather to hear, to listen. And this is where his great joy is to be found. And so if, uh, to answer your question, I would say yes, because we are to interiorize this monasticism in the sense that we understand that too, that our dignity and identity comes to us from God and that he has given, spoken his word to us and and, in an unrepeatable and complete fashion, given us that word, allows us to consume it so that we become one with it uh, in such a way that uh, we begin to participate in the very life it holds within it. And so if this is the reality you know why would we want to move out of that silence uh you know i was i came across a little quote today from uh the brothers karamazov dostoevsky and he he has this little statement that says the silent person is always more beautiful than the person who speaks <laughs> and i think for most people it that would be a little bit of a confusing statement but you know, out of what Dostoevsky was writing, you know, he had this understanding of this spirituality where he could say that that you know a, a person who s- sees with the eyes of faith and hears with uh, faith is 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 going to be able to understand that perfectly well. That you know, in some ways, the, the a person who is silent. Uh, not simply because they're introverted, but because they're they are so completely focused upon God that the glory of God is going to shine through them without impediment, with greater clarity. And uh, and so this is why you can understand words of you know somebody like Saint Seraphim of Sarov, you know someone, the person who has the peace of Christ will convert thousands. That merely by bearing the peace of Christ within our hearts is going to be something that speaks to the heart of the other. And ultimately, that's what we want and desire for ourselves in our relationship with God core ad core loquitur, heart speaking to heart. That, you know, there ultimately is no need for words in that communication with God because our words you know can't capture you know what is really the essence of ourselves our needs our yearnings our love and this is why I think we've been given that spirit that dwells within us that you know cries out with groans greater than any words and uh nor can our words capture who God is He must reveal himself fully to us by giving himself fully to us. It's the most extraordinary of mysteries and uh, something that we should silently meditate upon. Uh, The less words, the better. And then the final paragraph. Again, in worldly life, He who boasts of his bodily strength or his wealth is regarded by men as great. But in our monastic way of life, he who loves humility and frugality is truly lofty and excellent. And as Holy Scripture says, that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Let us therefore love what is pleasing to the Lord as good and grateful servants, and let us no longer be eager to please men, for as the Apostle Paul says, if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ since the whole world lieth in wickedness, as it is said elsewhere. So a beautiful way, I think, to, to bring us to the end of, of this, uh, this group, um, St. Ephraim the Syrian, that again, we are presented with this image of what life in Christ offers us, the beauty of it. And why we would take a path that seems nonsensible, nonsensical to the world. Uh, we take it because it is the path of, of divine love. Okay. Any final comments or questions? Okay, why don't we close as always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. May I want to God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. God.